Welcome to the Global Inquirer. Today we are partnering with the International Studies Office at the University of Virginia to discuss how global trends affected the lives of real students while they studied abroad. We interviewed four students throughout this process. I'm Brinsley Erickson. I'm a first year in the College of Arts and Sciences. Part of this new initiative uh, called the Global First Programs. Uh, at the time it was first started though, it was just called London First. Um, the Global First programs broadly are taking uh, first semester first years abroad, hence the name, to study somewhere in the world. London First, which was the program that I was in, we went to Regents University London. I am Carmen Garcia. I'm a fourth year graduating in May. Uh, I went abroad to Cuba and lived in Havana and attended the University of Havana uh, my spring 2017 semester. Oh, my name is Sarah Rupert. I'm a fourth year majoring in foreign affairs in French. It was spring of last year, so spring 2017. Hi, my name is Katie Summers. I'm a fourth year in the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, I'm a double major in Global Development Studies as well as Latin American Studies, and I minor in Spanish. Um, I'm currently an intern with the International Studies Office, um, having completed three different study abroad opportunities, the first being a summer language immersion program with Ipsa Butler in Argentina for a summer in 2016. Um, and I followed that up the spring of my third year. I went abroad on exchange at Lund University in Sweden. And then after that, through the Global Internships Program at UVA, I interned in Pune, India for a summer working um, with a school run through the nonprofit Akanksha. All four of these students went across the world to various countries, but a couple of different themes and trends actually tied their experiences together. The first one we saw was how students discussed their actual studies. There's a common theme that all of them were able to get an entirely different perspective on important historical and political events. Sarah Rupert talked about taking language courses in Morocco. And I was taking a variety of French classes, politics classes, and then an Arabic class. Brinsley found that people absolutely loved talking about politics, and that was one of the best icebreakers while she was there, asking someone about their opinion on Brexit. Professor Levinson, uh, who's the one who directed our program, one of the first things he told us when we showed up uh, in the London First program was that if you want to get to know a British person, ask them how they feel about Brexit, which is probably the truest statement I've ever heard. I mean, the people in Britain are super talkative to people that they don't know about, except about Brexit. The energy about Brexit is still so strong. Katie Summers experienced academic options she never would have experienced at UVA. All of the academics I learned, yeah. um, well, I guess for the first two, because the internship was a little bit more of kind of self and skills practicing, mm. but in Argentina and Sweden, I got to take a lot of courses that I wouldn't be able to at UVA. Sure. So in Argentina, we specifically took classes about Argentine history, and we got to go to museums. We got to see the politics and culture and history come alive and mm -hmm. really explore the topics that we were reading about in a way that I couldn't if I was sitting in a classroom at UVA. Yeah. And specifically in Sweden, one of my favorite courses was the religious impact of migration in Sweden, which right. is something I would never even know about. I mean, yeah. thinking about Sweden, it's in Scandinavia, it's like one of the happiest countries in the world, I yeah. think. One of the most thriving education systems, and yet you wouldn't think about the different religious movements and impacts there. However, mm. we got to go to a, I think it was a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. Mm. It was maybe 30, 40 minutes outside of the city, which was crazy to me. I didn't know right. that I would be doing that when mm. I departed, but I really enjoyed the classes. 
Carmen Garcia learned about the Cuba's communist revolution from the perspective of the communists. The research and work I was doing further, you know, encouraged me to study more about Latin American politics and everything. I mean, I learned so much. I took a class on the Cuban revolution in Cuba. So it was like the viewpoint was so different from anything I had learned in an American classroom. Like it blew my mind. I'm sitting here. I'm like, interesting. Like the propaganda is wild. There's propaganda everywhere. So it was just so unique to see this and be taught these things, this history it's so weird when you're taught history completely different because of who's teaching it, you know? Um, so my Latin American studies was a lot different in Cuba than it was in uh, the U.S. or here at UVA. Now, going beyond studies, one thing that did come up a lot was Trump. Everyone wanted to talk about it. Reactions to Trump across the world were astoundingly diverse. Carmen Garcia saw that the Cubans knew next to nothing about Trump because information was hard to come by. When Trump had just been elected, so that was a big one, but they didn't even really know that much about him because there's no, I mean, in comparison with like my family in Spain, it was like, ah, Trump, like he's crazy because it's Europe. They get those at that information. Um, Cuba is just like, so like, um, you have like a crazy president here, but we really don't know like what's up with that. So I had to like explain like political platforms. I got there pretty much like a couple days after Trump was inaugurated mm -hmm. and everyone, as soon as they figure out that you're American, they want to hear your opinion on it and they want to express their opinion on it. So the, like, the vast majority of Moroccans um, responded very negatively to Trump, I think in part because of the travel ban and what they had heard about um, from like Moroccan media or from French media about how Trump uh, views Muslims and Morocco being a like it's 99% Muslim. Um, and so there was a fair amount of, there was actually like a lot of people asking me, like, do you know, will my son or my daughter be able to study in America at university in a couple of years? Like, would that, can that work? The interesting thing though, is that some Moroccans actually supported Trump. But there actually, there were a couple times where I was in taxis and, um, the taxi driver would, would come out very strongly in favor of Trump, in part because Morocco has a situation where sub-Saharan migrants and refugees come through Morocco and attempt to get to Spain. And then when they can't get to Spain, they stay in Morocco. And so there's this perception in Morocco that he is not dissimilar to the perception by some Americans that people from the South Sub-Saharan Africans, um, in the case of Morocco, or Mexicans or Central Americans, in the case of America, are like coming in and taking jobs, um, or just kind of changing the demographics of the society in a way that people are afraid of in some ways. Um, so this one taxi driver was like, "Yeah, like I love what he's doing um, with the wall. Like he's crushing the what was the word the the parasites." While the crushing of parasites is an extreme statement to say the least, it is a segue into another really big theme, migration. The discussion of migrant experiences was almost ubiquitous amongst the people we interviewed. Sarah pointed out that Morocco receives money from the European Union to tide the flow of refugees into Spain and the rest of Europe. Morocco also gets a ton of money from the EU in order to keep 
sub-Saharan migrants and refugees from successfully crossing the border. So on the Spanish side, there are multiple fences and guards, but then on the Moroccan side, there's also multiple fences and guards. They're working together to a certain extent. Brinsley also saw a lot of unhappiness directed towards migrants and refugees, especially after a bombing of a subway station that occurred while she was abroad. It definitely it is correlated. I mean, most people um, who are for Brexit, the first thing they would say is that we give, you know, this amount of millions of pounds uh, to the EU annually. Um, those claims are still being sort of disputed and uh, because of trade agreements and everything. But the second thing that they would always say is that we can't let the EU tell us to take in refugees. And so many people would say, look what's happening in France, in Germany, um, in Belgium. Um, we can't have those situations happen to us. We've had attacks. Um, Parsons Green happened um, the first day that I arrived in London, which was a... Uh, I mean, I hate to call any attack a small sort of thing, but it was a small explosion at a tube station in a very wealthy area of London. And it didn't completely rattle a lot of people, but there, there have been a lot of other attacks um, where people are saying, oh, this is because of refugees. Whether or not those claims are true, uh, a lot of people think that because the EU is saying that the UK needs to take in refugees, the EU is essentially saying that, like, listen, you're going to have to take on like some terrorists. People are thinking that the EU is making um, the UK less safe. So a lot of people who are for Brexit are also very much against bringing in immigrants into the country, especially refugees from the Middle East. And Katie Summers saw the demographic change in Sweden right before her eyes as the country takes on more and more migrants. Where I was living in the southern part of Sweden, which mm -hmm. was maybe a 10-minute train ride away from, I think, the third largest uh, city in Sweden, which is called Malmö. And in Malmö, there's a really large concentration of migrants because it's right near the border of Denmark where you can get in from Copenhagen. So a lot of migrants go there. And so I didn't personally interact, but had a lot of kind of distant conversations about how Swedish people viewed that and kind of the slow polarization of Swedes against the migrants coming in, especially as it's they're coming from more specific targeted areas now. Mm -hmm. Although at the same time, my landlord there was from Syria and became a um, naturalized Swedish citizen through like a scholarship and then kind of the luck of the lottery. But yeah. it was fascinating to see him and his role. And I wish I could have asked him more about that. But hearing about that... Mm -hmm. And then seeing kind of the separate migrant yeah. community. Demographics and identity also came up a lot. During her time in India, Katie did notice that identity played a really big role in pupil-student relationships in the school she went to. I guess the best way I could see it is like in this school. Mm -hmm. um, the school I was working in was in a predominantly Muslim area, mm -hmm. which is not a problem, but to recognize that the resources, this NGO run school, which was bilingual mm -hmm. uh, or trilingual, I guess, because um, they speak the regional dialect as well as um, Hindi and they're learning English. Yeah. Um, and like they were able to, the people who pro practiced Islam there, were able to take off for the holidays that passed while I was there. Mm -hmm. um, but you're not al allowed to wear hijabs. Mm -hmm. um, 
the teachers are not allowed to openly practice their religion. Mm -hmm. And I think some kind of talked about it with me, but that's not something that they can discuss or talk about. So you can see the politics in the sense of in the realm of the classroom, which is similar to, I think, in Europe, how teachers aren't allowed to openly practice their religion. And so there's that question of veiling. Yeah. And it's definitely more nuanced than that, but that's something that I could more readily see or see in the kind of gender differences in the school. Everyone also mentioned kind of standing out identity-wise within the nations they stayed in, be it India or Cuba. Carmen had a really fun time in Cuba trying to make friends. She had difficulties connecting with people because she was an American. It was very clear that I was American, you know, that still wasn't like something I was able to disguise entirely. So you were treated a little more with wary, you know, so they're like, oh, you're American. I mean, obviously Cuba and the U.S., you know, haven't had the best of relationships in the past century. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of mistrust there, I think. There's just an innate lack of, not respect, but just general mistrust. Um, But thankfully, I feel like I was personally able to incorporate myself, like make friends in the university, which I think was great because none of my peers were American. They were all Cuban. So there was only eight of us from the U.S. in total. So I didn't spend all that much time with them. Um, So once you build that trust, I think it's a lot easier to communicate. But originally, like people are hesitant to hang out with the Americans. Personally, one of my um, closest friends was actually in the military in Cuba. So I got a really unique uh look into what that was like he always had to be on um like on his toes and stuff at the university because for example castro's grandson attends the university so if any you know sort of uproar or happened at the university like he immediately had to get out of civilian mode and be in the military and like go and be on you know guard so it was really interesting being like one of his close friends and him taking me around being like yes like these are places where we are always surveying stuff like that. Um, I found it was a lot easier to make friends with guys there. The girls really don't want to be your friend. I'm not sure what that says about it or why that's the case, but um, females are a lot like more judgmental of American women, and I think guys obviously have their other like motives and stuff, but eventually you can just be friends with them once you get past that. But it was a lot harder to make like female friends. Now, people in Morocco speak three languages, French, Arabic, and a form of Moroccan Arabic. And these languages feed into the social hierarchy there. It's actually really interesting that language is very much a class divider in, uh, in that if you're educated, you speak French. If you want to work in the government, if you want to have any sort of high-powered job, you need to speak French and you need to speak it well. Um, usually you will have done maybe your high school in Morocco, but then gone to France for university. Um, and then Moroccan Arabic is called Darija. And so that is considered in a lot of ways, kind of, uh, lower class. Everyone speaks it. Um, but, uh, and then there's also Berber. So the ethnic groups in Morocco, it's Arabs and Berbers. There's been a large amount of intermixing over the past few centuries, but there are people that identify very like specifically as Berber, and they speak Berber as their first language. Um, it goes as far as even the McDonald's in Morocco using French as a language of choice to keep poor people out of it. It's actually the, the one example that I can think of that really shows the language divide very well is that uh, there's a McDonald's in the neighborhood that I lived in in Rabat, and the menu is in French, 
uh, all the signs are in French and you have to order in French. And it's a way of keeping out kind of lower class people in that if you don't speak French, you can't go in there and order. Um, McDonald's is seen as like a very high class thing in Morocco. There are difficulties in reconciling Moroccan identity with geographic proximity to Africa. The sub-Saharan migrants and refugees do experience a lot of racism. And a lot of them that are coming in are Christian. And so I think that also plays into um, some of the, the prejudices that Moroccans have. It's a whole other conversation in itself as to whether Moroccans identify as African. Most of them don't, despite being on the same continent. Um, and I think a large part of this is due to colonialism, of like the idea that because they are lighter skinned, and some Moroccans do look white, and some Moroccans really don't, but this idea that they're closer to Europeans and are in some ways, you know, quote unquote, more civilized. It's like Morocco is a pretty racist society. And there's still small vestiges of the native Berber identity there in Morocco. Berbers are definitely, well, it's hard to say like what the, the racial breakdown is in part because there have been, there's just been a lot of intermarriage between Arabs and Berbers because the Arabs came in, I'm going to butcher this, several hundred years ago came into North Africa. Um, so the, the regions that are predominantly Berber today are the places that are more remote, um, harder to access, up in the mountains, um, and have actively maintained a Berber identity. But Berbers that have then moved to big cities, um, there's been a lot more mixing. I mean, my host family was um, a Berber dad and then an Arab mom. Um, and so it's hard to say, you know, who's Berber and who's Arab aside from, like, you can't tell the difference by looking at people. Um, people will know by last names. There are certain names that people are like, oh, that's a Berber name. Um, people will know by language um, in that it's very unlikely that you would find anyone identifying as Berber that does not speak. There's actually like three different Berber dialects in Morocco, um, but at least one of them to kind of identify as Berber. But um, it's actually within the past few years, there's been um, kind of a resurgence of Berber identity. And so when the Arab Spring happened in 2011, one of the demands by some of the people protesting was the recognition of Berber as national language. Um, and so since 2011, there's been an increase. There Now buildings have, most buildings have, um, the name of the building, like the government agency, in Arabic, in French, and then in Berber. But not a lot of people read Berber. It's more common to speak it than to read it. But it's been, at least there's been cosmetic changes for the Berbers. Identity and differences weren't limited to skin color or ethnic identity. Where you were in the country also changed dynamics a lot, and Brinsley saw this a lot in Britain. The majority of London uh, voted to remain in the EU, and so they are just thinking this is about one of the most apocalyptic things that could ever happen to them. It, generally speaking, is how it felt when you would talk to people on the tube and at pubs and just in the park and things like that. Um, and it makes sense because London is an extremely diverse city. It's one of the most diverse cities in the world, um, although I don't have the specific statistics on it. Um, Did you get the sense that like the, their feelings were 
perhaps not necessarily reflective of like all the, the other areas in England because they were so strongly against it. Definitely. There's this feeling, and generally um, I can talk more about how this is representative culturally of the UK in general, um, but London was very much, we should have remained in the EU. This is the worst thing that's ever going to happen. Our economy's going to collapse. Racists are going to take over the government. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. I think there are some, personally, I find some validity in their claims um, in terms of uh, hate crimes that have spiked in the UK since then. But um, either way, it's really about my opinion. Um, I went to Dover um, uh, over the weekend while I was there, um, which is only a little bit of the ways outside of London. It's a very um, beautiful area, but it's um, a little bit—it's a little bit more rural. It's not quite as um, urban. Well, it's definitely not as urban as London. Um, and the feeling in Dover was the complete opposite. People were constantly making fun of how Londoners felt about Brexit. Uh, and my tour guide, for example, um, when we were going through caves and uh, exploring other World War II sites in that area, kept saying, "Yeah, they're acting like the world is ending, and it's not. We're gonna be fine." Uh, and a lot of other people um, feel really empowered by Brexit outside of London. Um, obviously, this isn't really representative of Scotland, which also voted to remain. But generally speaking, if you are in England and you are not in London, you think that this Brexit is a really good idea. You think that um, you have more control over your borders. A lot of people feel a lot safer and they feel like they have a lot more control of, over their economy. Um, and a lot of people outside of London think that they're going to do a lot better fiscally. Um, and so there is a feeling of actually of security, even though there are a lot of issues going on with Brexit right now. For example, with Northern Ireland, we don't really know what's going to happen in the negotiations. Um, but a lot of people outside of London feel extremely comfortable with um, how the situation's going and how the result has been going. Londoners were distraught over Brexit, but people outside of London were quite happy with it. They actually played into a collective disdain that people outside of London had for the city. London is not only the cultural center, but also the political center and also the financial center of the UK. This is incredibly pr problematic for a country to have so much of every aspect of your society be centered in one area. So in the United States, our political capital is Washington, D.C. Our cultural capital is pretty much split between New York and Los Angeles in terms of movie media. And our financial capital is generally New York. So we have a lot of these centers for um, cultural development, societal development, financial development that are spread across the country. Um, and this is good for us in the sense that people don't feel like one small, tiny area of the country is completely controlling our lives. Now, of course, people in the United States still think that D.C., New York, and L.A., these urban areas um, are controlling and taking over our environment. And that's definitely something that people in rural areas have a valid claim over. But in the U.K., this is, this is the situation on steroids, basically. When you have every money-making political objective, cultural objective centered in one tiny area of the country, it leaves the rest of the country feeling incredibly disenfranchised. So they're thinking, why politicians in London don't care about me? They're thinking that businesses in London don't care about me. They don't care about Dover. They don't care about the Midlands. They don't care about the North. They don't care what we're going through politically, culturally. They don't understand our culture. They don't understand what our economy is like and what we're going through. Um, and so these other areas outside of London are seeing this happening and they're saying, fine, you know, we'll take that London. We're going to screw you over because if we leave the EU, that's going to hurt you and your immigrant population and your politicians and you are that, this and that. Um, but it's not going to hurt us. 
Yeah. And so it, it, this polarization also is in a lot of ways a way that the rest of the country is getting back at London for being such a strong capital and for being so center in every aspect of, of most of the UK. And London itself became a massive theater for protests over Brexit, with daily demonstrations occurring at Westminster. There have been protests against Brexit in London every single day outside of Westminster. I actually went to one of them. Um, and it's, there's an organization for it where they bring different demographics of people that just come out. And it's actually hilarious. They will literally just stand facing Westminster and scream. Um, how, many, like how many people are we talking um, so I went to Westminster a couple of times, so it ranged anywhere from four to five to 20, probably. Um, and they're doing, they've been doing that every single day since the Brexit vote came oh. in. Um, and they're planning on doing it every single day until they get Brexit repealed. Going beyond regional gaps, Carmen saw a generational gap. Young people were having none of the propaganda they saw there. And there was a hatred of the state newspaper in particular. So if you think about the U.S., like capitalism, commercialism, you'll have like, um, a cover girl magazine, like advertisement on a big billboard. So the equivalent of that in Cuba is like, Viva la Revolucion, you know, or like Fidel Castro is like our father, basically. So it's just, if you switch out all of these capitalist um, advertisements in the US for propaganda, that's where Cuba is. It's just everywhere. Um, there aren't advertisements for things because there aren't really commercial companies. There's like one company that owns everything in Cuba. I mean, communism, like, makes sense, but uh, propaganda's everywhere. I think the younger generations are starting to kind of realize, you know, what's happening. Not so much the older ones, but there's groups, like, there was the Young, young Communist Club, but then there was also, you know, ones that question it. So there is a division there that I think is starting to grow. But, yeah, uh, I don't know. There's a gap, obviously, between older generations, younger generations, what they believe is right, what they'll completely accept as truth without searching for facts to uh, contradict it. Without internet, um, with a newspaper that... <laughs> so the, the newspaper in Cuba, uh, the joke is that people... So there's no toilet paper in Cuba? That's like a big issue, is that um, it went like a whole month without toilet paper one month. And so the joke is that they use the newspaper as toilet paper to wipe their asses because it's all propaganda and it's not worth reading. It's what the, the actual utility of the newspaper is to wipe your butt. Um, <laughs> so it's just that it comes directly from the government. It's, I mean, maybe partly factual, but it's just exactly what they want you to believe. So, and I don't think there are any good sources, alternative sources for people to find. Um, everything's blocked. I mean, Facebook was blocked, Snapchat was blocked when I was in Cuba. Like, I couldn't access those on my phone. And then a lot of news media outlets were also inaccessible. So if you're a Cuban, you want to read the Washington Post, like, that's just not going to happen. So where do you find alternate facts, you know? It just doesn't seem like there are any, unless, you know, talk to the people that are coming, which aren't that many, so it's hard. And Sarah pointed out that the Moroccan government has had difficulties reconciling all three languages in the state and making sure that everyone in the country is included. Um, a lot of Moroccans, I think, watch French TV stations. So when the French election was happening, which is while I was there, um, my host family watched TV coverage of the different candidates with like a large degree of in, uh, interest because a lot of Moroccans will go to France to study, or a lot of Moroccans pretty much every Moroccan is going to have at least a family member that is studying in France or is living in France. Um, and so for them, that election was of great personal interest. Um, 
for my host family. My host dad has a brother living in France and his, is raising his family there. Um, but anything, any news in Arabic is going to be in modern standard Arabic. Darisha is, is not considered a classy language. Um, so my dad actually did the Peace Corps in Morocco in the 1980s, and he learned Moroccan Arabic while he was there, and then ended up becoming a journalist. Um, but he tells this story about at some point he had the opportunity to ask the king a question um, during, like, the king was taking questions from the media, and my dad asked the question in Moroccan Arabic as opposed to modern standard Arabic. And it caused somewhat of an uproar in that it was considered pretty rude to address the king in Moroccan Arabic as opposed to modern standard Arabic. This is our last episode of the semester. We wanted to get away from a strictly academic view on the issues and get on our feet to observe how the trends we talked about influence people's experiences. Reading the news, talking to experts, and considering different points of view are all incredibly important. But sometimes you have to get out there and see it for yourself. These four students did, and their experiences speak for themselves. Thank you to the students we interviewed, Brinsley Erickson, Carmen Garcia, Katie Summers, and Sarah Rupert. And thank you to the researchers who conducted these interviews, Kara Creeling, Emmy Lockwood, Derek Wong, and Tyler Hinkle. Thank you for another great season of The Global Inquirer. We'll be going on hiatus for the summer, but as always, please rate us five stars on iTunes or share us on Facebook. Your support always helps. We look forward to starting another great season of The Global Inquirer this fall.